Okay, so welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast. Uh, this morning, very excited to have a special guest on, which I'm going to introduce in a minute. It doesn't need much introduction, um, if I'm being honest, but really, really glad we've got him on the show. Um, co-host this morning, um, we've actually kicked off the gaffer again. Um, he's had a baby, so Kieran's just had his little boy called Caden. Apparently, it's Gaelic for fighter or warrior, so I'm sure they're up the walls with uh, with feeding and stuff early on. So massive congratulations to him and his and his partner his wife and their two little girls already uh, this morning i'm joined by ben smalley again ben welcome welcome back to the locker room podcast cheers ross good to be on looking forward to this one for sure yeah i don't want to embarrass you too much but i think you're uh, this guest is number one fan right <laughs> oh yeah been on a few of his uh few of his workshops online listen to him listen to him speak so it'll be a good one Fantastic. Um, and without further ado, this morning we've got Jonas Dodu, who again needs no introduction and we'll get a bit of history off him, who's head coach at Speedworks Training. Um, Jonas, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me on board. Thanks for your patience. We've been trying to do this for a while now, so really appreciate it. No problem. So I understand you've been you've been everywhere all over the web and you've got two little ones as well. So you've been running around in this period. Um, so thank you for coming on. Just before we get into the um, get into the show, I just want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors who have sponsored again now. I think they've committed to another two month sponsorship of the podcast, which is fantastic. www.ripped.app. That's R-Y-P-T all capital letters and they're essentially an online platform that can provide online training programs they've got demonstrations on there so visual cues to individual clients to training to uh, to athletes to coaches to sports scientists you can measure uh, monitoring you can monitor workload you can monitor all the reps and and the work you're doing remotely and send them programs individually um, it's a great tool for s coaches and, and coaches working in a plethora of different sports and ben we've been doing a little bit of work on online training with them using the app haven't we yeah, yeah, for sure. That's just started up recently. Um, had a few clients jump on and got some really good feedback so far. So yeah, good service provided by us. Fantastic. Head over to the website, guys, www.dealysportscience.com and you'll see all our normal range of service that the members will be uh, aware of. And also you'll see a link to rip.app where you get two months free trial and you'll start seeing DSS work um, a little bit closer with those and generate some of these programs. So really exciting stuff. So thanks for them. Um, let's jump straight in then, Jonas. I guess um, a lot of people will definitely know who you are, um, but maybe it's worth just running through um, a, a brief history, if you like, of what you're doing now and kind of how you've, how you've got to where you are. Um, okay. And um, never know where to start and stop with these. So I'll, I'll do like a whistle stop tour and, and you can stop me if you feel um, you need to. I am a coach. I've always been a coach. Um, even when I was playing sport, um, I thought um, I was good at translating um, what our coaches were trying to get across to us, playing rugby, playing basketball. Um, and even in the classroom, um, I, was, I was one of those guys. I, I've always found myself to be pretty empathetic. So I'm, I'm pretty good at at least, and my, my wife wouldn't say so. She would say the opposite, by the way, right? But um, I, 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 I rarely struggle to get someone's perspective, even if I'm arguing with someone. Even if someone has a very different perspective to me, I've always found it pretty easy to go, okay, I understand from your perspective, based on your history, your experiences, your, your bias, um, um, I, 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 David Gray said recently that you can't, you can argue facts, but you can't argue experiences. And, and it's true that you can argue facts. I can say this is right or wrong, but in my scenario, if I've experienced this, this is my truth. Okay. So most of my life, I found that I've been searching for other people's truths. I've always been trying to understand from other people's perspectives. 
Um, and so coaching rugby, coaching football, coaching SNC, coaching PTing with, with um, equine, uh, like horse riders, um, rehabbing players and, and athletes and, and, and old people and fat people. And um, I'm, I'm part of that population now. Um, and so I, I guess my history is really based on going through the sciences, learning and going and doing my degree and my master's at Hartford College and, and being able to coach young um, up and coming athletes um, and was just talking about it last week about um, in my during my masters I um, got to coach some young developing uh, uh, female rugby players one of them was Natasha Hunt who we call Mo um, and at the time she was playing for for England and so I I inherited some of their players for one of our camps um, they went on to go and win the under 20s world cup I think this was in Canada at the time and it's quite cool because now I'm based in Loughborough. A lot of those girls 10 years ago, more, maybe more than 10 years ago, are based here or are playing for England senior team that are often here. And it's nice to see them have grown over this time and nice to see how you know, some of them have become the best players in the world. Um, and so part of my early journey really was, was giving my services away for free, trying to train anyone and everyone that I could. Um, and, um, and some of those young kids have turned into uh, a Jaden Sancho, for example, who I worked with when I think he was nine. I think his dad found us when he when we was in, I was in Battersea Park. I wasn't even coaching track and field at a, at a decent level yet. His dad was just really hungry to find some decent coaching. Um, or Natasha Hunt, like I say, or Dan Norton, who's now like, you know, crowned as the, the highest tri, tri scorer maybe in, in sevens history. Um, and all, all of these guys I've worked with when I knew nothing. Um, and so it's, it's quite interesting that I was able to learn through the process of coaching young people, giving my services away for free, doing a good job on some, on some um, in some situations, but doing a terrible job on another situation. Like Carl Sinclair, you know, one of the best props in the world. I remember, not many people know this story, so this is, a, this is definitely exclusive. I remember um, in my early days, again, I wasn't even coaching at a very high level. I was just really hungry to give my services. He was during pre-season. He was probably an academy player. I don't even know if he was at Harlequins or if he was still at Ironside. But he came down for a session. I didn't know what he had done that day, the day before. Didn't know what his plan to do the next day. I hadn't communicated with the staff. I hadn't done anything. I was just really happy that I had a rugby player. He came, did some speed training, pulled his hamstring within half an hour. Um, and that was that. I didn't see him again until maybe like 10 years later, right? And so I think I haven't really given you a lot about my history, but the, the, a lot of the lessons I've learned over this time and now almost starting to repeat on us is that speed is important. The whole sports science community right now believes speed is important again, which is great. Maybe they never stop believing it, but it's now at, at you know, the top of the agenda and everyone's now going to be doing speed training. Are the instance, uh, instances of injuries going to reduce? Maybe they will stay the same. It's just they'll happen at different points. Maybe they won't be happening in worst case scenarios in games. They're more likely to happen in training now that people are trying to do speed. And, and, and so I think really what I'm trying to say is that um, it'll be interesting to talk about speed training. It's going to be interesting to, it's interesting to see people do more speed training. But there is this underpinning thing of training for speed versus doing speed training. And, um, and I think it's quite exciting. It's an exciting time that everyone's keen for speed again. Um, but over my past 10, 12, 15 years, what I've, the most important things I've learned coaching at different levels in sport, um, different types of athletes, is that it's one thing to, to train speed, it's another thing to train for speed.
Um, and so there you go. Very, very good concepts. And I'm sure we'll get into a good discussion around that sort of stuff um, later on. Jones, do you want to just give a little bit of uh, insight to who you're working for and with now? And then maybe just a little bit around UK Athletics and maybe your, I'd say your internship, but your like education and who your mentors were and who you really took some stuff from throughout that period. So currently I'm self-employed or I'm the director of my company. I have been since 2012. So up until from 2009, my wife and I were both apprentice coaches for Dan Path, based in London, in Lee Valley. Um, and prior to that, um, this is probably, it should have happened in my history part of this conversation, I know. Um, prior to that, I was um, doing my master's in coaching and I went and studied Dan Path. And Dan Path to me is one of the best coaches in the world, full stop. Um, and so I went and studied my master's thesis under him. My, my master's uh, and my, my MSc was based on coaching science, um, reflective practice, um, coach education, and, and biggest thing being expertise. How do people become experts? What can we learn from experts? And not just experts in the field, but across the fields. What are the common denominators of a expert chess player, expert rugby player, expert surgeon, expertise in, in, um, in, in architecture? There, there are common denominators across the board. Um, what are these common themes? I, I tried to take them and then apply them to Dan and, and see if they were the same. So firstly, to prove he is an expert. Secondly, I tried to take his blueprint and create a philosophy from it, or at least a blueprint for a philosophy. And I would arguably say that even like 13 years on from that point, 85% of the way I look at the world is, is through what I learned from Dan Path. Um, so I learned from him. I came back, I got an apprentice, uh, I learned from him in, in California. A year later, he was employed, million pound contract to come and work for British Athletics in the build up to 2012, a home Olympics. Um, I, I became his apprentice coach, employed by British Athletics, and they ran a apprentice program. Um, probably one of the most Im impressive things British, British Athletics have ever done, and maybe will do. And essentially, they got some super coaches, Dan, Kevin, Derek Evie, they got some really good super coaches from around the world, based them here. And then they took uh, eight or nine of us um, as development coaches uh, under those coaches and under other, some other British super coaches, Aston Moore in Birmingham, um, one of our most successful horizontal, coach, um, horizontal jumps coaches, um, for example. Um, and so a number of master coaches had a number of apprentices and we were employed to learn. We weren't employed for performance. We weren't employed to get people to the Olympics. We were employed for three years to learn. And at the end of that three years, I, ha I had two athletes who Dan had essentially given to me um, who competed at the Olympics. Um, and I had maybe three athletes who competed and medaled at the Paralympics in, in cerebral palsy sport. I was also supporting Johnny Peacock, um, who's an, uh, a, a below-the-knee amputee. Um, maybe he's above the knee, actually. Above-the-knee amputee. Um, and then... Um, that was probably a, a really important phase in my life because after 2012, those jobs disappeared and I had a choice. I could go and follow some of the job offers. I, I, I continued working a bit in rugby. So I had some opportunities in the UK. I had some opportunities abroad. Um, but I decided to make my own company, Speedworks, Speedworks Training now. And we split into a, a company and a charity. And I formed a charity because there's a lot of research that, that basically shows that our, our junior athletes, British junior athletes can be in the top three in the world consistently, and then they disappear. So as juniors, as under 20s, they're some of the best in the world. 
And when we get to senior levels, a lot of those guys don't even get a vest, don't even make a senior team. A lot of the, those guys' best performances are when they're 18 or 19. So this is a major challenge. It's been a con consistent challenge in the country. Um, so we, we started a charity. I continued developing my group. Um, and long story short, after four years, we had six people at the Olympics, um, four Brits and two, two Africans. Um, and one, one of them was a Brit who had changed um, nationality. Um, and those, those athletes were all in their early 20s, between 21 and 23. No, maybe Daryl was 19. Maybe she was the youngest person on the British team at that time. Um, but essentially, we changed the course of, of what normally happens with juniors. We've got a number of good juniors who became great seniors who are now still consistently um, performing at the highest level. Um, and that's really been my journey. Alongside that, I've worked at Bath Rugby for a long period of time and mentored by Alan Ryan, who, who is an amazing SNC coach or performance director. I would, I would put him in that bracket, who's now over at Toulon. Um, and I've worked for England Rugby um, in the build-up to 2016. I was consulted to support the Sevens programme. And the build-up to the last World Cup, I was a consultant for Eddie Jones. Um, and so ho hopefully that's enough for you. Sure, fantastic. Um, great stuff there in terms of development stuff. What do you think goes wrong within that transition? Is it just a lack of support to those athletes coming through? or? Yeah. No, because um, you can go to other countries who, have, who don't have the NHS, who don't have the dole, yeah, don't have job seekers allowance, um, maybe don't have the same infrastructure as we do, and they do have people that come through. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes I think all of the support we have is a hindrance to people mm -hmm. coming through um, because you, you, you want... <laughs> You know, uh, people argue is grit real or not, but you do want people that have gone through some adversity um, because I would say arguably the best sprinter I've ever coached is Reese Prescott. Yeah, and he's arguably one of the best sprinters that have come out of Europe. And um, I've coached him uh, from, from when he was 16 up till now. And the reality is he wasn't the first of my group to come through. In fact, he's probably the last. He needed lots and lots of nurturing i broke him too many times hamstrings lower back issues he's got massive scoliosis we spent four or five years just getting him healthy if i'm honest mm -hmm. um and if he was in any other system he would have broken broken once twice they would have given up um but he had some good support from Wolverhampton, and i and i had patience and he had belief and and i had a great team ruth waghorn who now works for the fa really was uh, instrumental in in keeping him at bay mentally, I guess, keeping him um, encouraged and interested in the gym. Um, Gareth, uh, Gareth Degg, who was his osteopath, was really good at creating a relationship with him so that when I was off swanning off at Diamond Leagues and at World Champs and stuff with the other athletes, he had a support network at home. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that, that, would be, that would be important. So what, what's the biggest limiting factor? Is it support? I think it's what type of support. I don't think it's financial. Uh, by all means, by the time these guys become 20, 21, 22, their parents are saying, why are you spending so much time training? And why aren't you going for a job? Or why aren't you doing these other things? Their friends are saying, why, why aren't you on Clapham Common coming for a drink? Why are you getting up at 9am? Why are you doing all this? So you have these, uh, and, and girlfriends are saying the same thing. So you're having these social, uh, social cultural type draws away from committing to the sport. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you sometimes have finance and everyone will mention finance and, and that, that does make sense. Does funding support help? Yes. Um, but bloody hunger is probably the biggest limiting factor. Mm-hmm. It's that they've seen everyone get it really quickly. And if it hasn't come quick, they, they either believe they can't get it or they're in the wrong setup to get it. Um, and they make quick changes. So, so there's probably a number of factors. So maybe the important, more important thing is what are the solutions? I think the solutions are creating, uh, and my bias is what we've done, right? So at the moment in London, we have a, a, a group led by Marvin Rowe. Um, Marvin is the head coach for Speedwatch Charity in London. He has um, a number of staff, a lot of them are interns, some of them are paid, um, it, but it's a charity. So our internships have always been like year long internships with no income. Yeah, so it's counter to what is happening in football or what should be happening in team sports, in professional sports, but we run as a charity. Um, and what we seem to find is, and I'm going to go off topic, so we'll talk about internships later. Um, and so in, in London, um, there's a, a really cool setup where it's almost like a little mini EIS. Nowhere as close, but a little EIS. We, we have enough budget that we, we make sure we bring in a bit of psych, a bit of nutrition help. We've got some consistent staff there who are there who are coaching the technical by all means, the SNC by all means. We have some support from full stacks. Um, so we, we've been able to get some data out of, out of the guys and p- pull out some research. So we have a little mini, mini hub where, where we believe the important ologies, the important support services are being brought in for the guys. But probably most important, they have a central pillar of staff who are kind of like family. Mm. And so when they go through their highs and their lows, those staff are there to keep them level. And I think <clears throat> at the end of the day, m- most of these guys need a bit of an incubation period where their performance isn't their limiting factor, uh, isn't, isn't the only way they're measured. And if we give them enough time, uh, I, I guess it's like um, late developers in, in, in team sports, right? If you give them enough time, if you measure them by them, not measure them by someone who's, who's got six month um, advantage in growth, um, or someone who's got um, a different genetic or different background who may, as a result, um, be early, earlier developer, maybe even years. Some of our guys, we see that there's sometimes in the same year group, there's a two-year difference in maturation, in their ability to handle force, their ability to handle work capacity. So I've, it's a long answer, and I'm really good at long answers, so get used to it. But I think, I think essentially, if you create a setup where the important ologies are brought in to support these guys. Um, the, the, the coaching setup is patient and the coaching process is agile, right? You allow yourself to learn about what's the best thing for the athlete. Mm. Not, not prescribe, learn. Because an agile process means that we've applied a program in a system like a hypothesis and we've got 10 athletes and three, and the rule of thirds always apply. Three of them really thrive in that system. We go tick, okay, we know this really works. Three of them do okay. Then we've got to ask question marks and three of them actually maybe go backwards. And we say, well, this system is great for maybe half of the group, but this other half, we've got to train a bit differently. Not this other half, it's their fault. They didn't sleep well. They're not recovering well. They're not, they're not committed. They're lazy. All these things that we do by pointing the finger. But a great coach, Michael Afalaka says, if you find yourself always pointing a finger, look at your thumb. Because sometimes your thumb will be pointing back at you. And then you have to go, okay, well, maybe I need to reflect on this. 
Um, and I, I see it. I've seen it for years. I've watched lots of coaches say that athlete could be good, but he's not doing this. He's not doing that. He's not doing this. And then I'm like, mate, it's you. Um, so I, I think on that note, the answer, the real answer I should be given is the, the biggest limiting factor to juniors coming through is normally the coach and the coaching setup. Um, because if they're good enough, and look, look, I had, I had uh, six guys all from near enough two-mile radius from Lee Valley, all from North London. Not the most talented people in the world, not the most talented athletes picked from the best cities in the country. No, just from a small catchment area. And every year, I see 16, 18, 21-year-olds who remind me of those kids, who, who, who I go, right, if you had four years in the system... You're, you're a sub-9-9 runner. Not a sub-10 runner, sub-9-9 runner. There's, there's lots of them all over the country. Um, and um, I think the failing is normally down to coaching, but people don't say that out loud because it, it, it makes them cringe and, and it, it makes now, it makes us accountable. It's easy to blame, blame kids. It's hard, sure. it's hard to blame each other. And how, how often, I mean, you'll probably know going into team sports, how often do you hear that amongst team sports as well? The, the, the athletes getting the blame, the players getting the It's the easy thing to do, isn't it? To blame the player. Um, Jonas, I liked your bit there because a big thing around academy football, and I relate it back to where me and Ben are, is especially in the top academies, are we failing these players because they're getting too much support, too much on a holistic approach? They're getting their council tax set up for them, they're getting their water bills done. And does it take away the real world aspect for them? So when they end up playing League One, League Two football, like they're not used to that and they're not used to washing their kit. They're not prepared. So it's a balance there, isn't it? About nurturing and creating a good environment, but preparing them for the real world as well. Yeah. And, and look, as parents, I, I, I constantly ask myself, like, I, I could probably count the amount of toys that I had growing up. And um, you would never walk into a room and stand on, on toys because there's so many that the floor's covered, right? That's my house right now. Like, you're walking, like, even as a, the, the, the toys even come into the bloody garden, into the garage. Look, I've got a lawnmower right here, right? Um, and so, the, and I have this question, I have this conversation with my mum, like we weren't poor, poor, but I definitely weren't close to wealthy or, or, or anywhere near it. And, um, and, and I talked to my sisters about it because we have the same problem. Like we've got kids and we're, we're trying to provide for them. Often you try to give them what you didn't have, but if they don't, if they don't have the same experience you have, maybe they don't finish with the same hunger that you do. Um, and, and I think we're really good at talent IDing from physical capabilities, but not from hunger, not from res resilience. So it's very difficult to do those things until you see them in, in those kind of environments. Um, so, so certainly I, d I think that um, people aren't prepared for the, world, the real world when they come out of academies. Um, I think the bravado and the feeling of being a pro player is, um, can, <clears throat> can jade people because if they've got this feeling, I want to be like this, and then you say, but if you really want to be prepared to be a man or to be a grown-up, to be a woman, you've got to um, sweep the sheds, right? It's the same old stuff, right? Go, go sweep the sheds. Go. Do you've got to be able to um, wash your kit. You've got to be able to deal with advert, uh, um, or bad times. Um, you've got to be able to communicate and critically think. You've got to be able to um, uh, manage up. Managing upwards is very difficult for people in team environments because only once you become a captain do you feel you've got a voice. But <clears throat> in every job out there, people are being taught to manage upwards, find good ways to communicate with their leadership team so that there's a, 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 I don't know, a backwards and forwards communication going on. Whereas people in team environments often go, I'm just going to be quiet until I'm 
asked. I, I, I don't want to go against the grain. Whereas actually you see great teams have leadership teams within the teams, right? They have, even if you're not the captain, if you see something, like my mum always says, if there's bogey on, on your nose, I'll tell you because I'm your mum. Someone else may, might not tell you. They'll leave you to be embarrassed because they don't want to have that embarrassing conversation with you. They don't want to maybe disappoint you or get a backlash from your embarrassment. But it's more important to me as your mum that I communicate the hard things with you as well as the good things. That, that, is, that, that to me is trust. I believe in my team more if they feel confident and feel um, uh, yeah, uh, motivated or just feel like it's really important to raise important things. Um, and I think sometimes in team environments, they don't really get that exposure. So, you know, how you, how you expose academy players to an element of, of adversity to encourage grit, you've got to talk to Dave Collins or you've got to talk to Rusty Earnshaw or pe people like that who are, who that's their real field. Um, but, but for sure, the amount of people, and, and you know what, probably the amount of suicide or even depression, I don't know about suicide rate, but I, I can imagine the rate of depression of people who are cut and don't feel like they make it out of academies is ridiculous. I've, I've seen um, that a lot, of, a lot of the players that don't make it and get dropped, but have got used to a lifestyle, end up doing more criminal things because they've got to try and keep up with the lifestyle, right? So there's this feeling of the lifestyle that gets from being a, or nearly being a pro player or being perceived as a baller, that, that is a problem. It's probably very much outside the scope of this discussion, <laughs> but I see it all the time. I see it all the time in, in, um, in, in my world, it's more about the, the sprinters who want to be roadmen. You know, they, they, want to, they want to look a bit gangster. They want, to, they want to be perceived a certain way. And that's probably because their cousins, their friends, their, their neighbours are gangsters, are rappers, are from that world, right? And it's cool to be in that world. Um, but if you're not a gangster, don't pretend to be a gangster. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to because I've seen gangsters die. Right? It's just, there's, there's no need. You're not going to gain anything from it. If you're, a track, if you're an athlete, go to the track. You're a good boy. Go to the track, do track things. Go and play football. Go, go, go and find a way. Go and use your sport to help develop you as a person. Um, and so, again, it comes back to the coaches to recognise that, not to drop them or, or make them feel like they're um, failing because that's their background and instead to enhance them and almost show them another way. Yes, all your role models look like this, but some look like this. You just have to look. You have to find them. Um, sure. And if there's no role models over here, we can make you the next role model. We can develop you and push you there. For sure. And some very prevalent things there in the academy, especially in London as well, you know, around, around uh, social, economical um, pressure and, and things they have to go through. But you're 100% right. And having that right environment is going to set them up, hopefully, to deal with deal with what comes that's twice now Dave Collins has been mentioned on one of our podcasts I uh, Rich okay. Clark mentioned him um, and yourself I had the pleasure of working with him at, at Chelsea many years ago so very good guy mm -hmm. top guy um, so yeah I'll have to reach out and tell him he's, he's trending on our podcast for sure yeah great matters great matters uh, there you go um, yeah he's, he's very active on Twitter so we'll get a response within within minutes last one from me uh, Jonas before Ben's going to kick into a little bit around your philosophy and just talk a bit more about sprinting and, and running fast What's the mood been like in this COVID period within your camp? And obviously then the deferral of the Olympics. How have you tackled that with the isolation and stuff? And also, is the mood okay? Are you looking forward to next year? Has it changed the programme much? Yeah, I think for, for athletes, so if you look at athletes in my senior group, athletes in, in the two academies, the Loughborough one and, and the London one, you've seen that 
for some, like Marvin's group, for example, I, I get to watch their training data, their training video and, and see their training data. And they are thriving, not surviving because of COVID. And he, he won't mind me saying this because we had the conversation yesterday. They are thriving. They are all in the best condition they've ever been. And maybe they're in a, they're a, a standard deviation above what Marvin expected them to be like. Yeah. Um, and that's because of uh, Dan Path says, uh, stimulate, adapt, stabilize, actualize. Yeah. We're all very good as coaches in this stimulation, adapt, stimulation, adapt thing. And, and that's because it's just physical processes that are helping with that. But this stabilization thing is very much a skill thing. Yeah, being really clear of the movement and having enough exposures that it's moved from being maybe conscious to subconscious. Um, but actualizing is what you need to be able to do it in the cold, the rain, under pressure, no pressure, when you're fatigued, etc. Um, and uh, athletic season sometimes gets you caught out where when athletes are about to stabilize, they have to race really soon. Yeah, from the indoors to the outdoors. Sometimes we don't have enough time to stabilize. And sometimes an injury, an early season injury or pre-season injury is good for some athletes because it gives them more time. There's less pressure to come back quickly, yeah? And coming back quickly, forcing yourself to come back when things aren't fully ready is a recipe for disaster, either repeat injury or for the really talented athletes, you get an injury on the other side, yeah? Or you get an injury up and down the chain because they're really, they're, their compensation strategies are great. So when people talk about self-organization, I always say self-organization maybe needs a bit of a nudge. Sometimes you need to, you need to re regress from allowing the perception action for the athletes to just figure it out and you need to go, that's the weak link. And if that's the weak link, if we don't address it, if we don't focus on it, if we keep letting them compensate around it, it will become a weaker link because it's never stressed. Yeah. Um, so what's my point? I'm going to go backwards. Um, so uh, th this time has been really good for um, athletes to stabilize. So I've seen that. This time's also been really good for athletes to dream bigger. So we've had athletes go, right, last year I was rehabbing and they've done a great job rehabbing. They're really, really confident, really, really clear that they're in a good place to perform. And actually they've decided to move on to more competitive groups. Yeah, other environments where they know they're gonna be pressed, maybe environments that they didn't think they would deserve or be able to thrive in this time last year. So it's almost a good athlete, athlete um, transition um, and migration is a normal thing. Uh, I, I expect it, I encourage it often. Um, and so where you, where you see some of the athletes have decided, actually, I'm confident now, I'm clear now, I, I wanna be stressed by the best people in the world. And they've chased environments that are gonna give them stress. Um, and, and really the story is some people have used COVID as um, an extended pre-season and some have used it as an extended off season. And the people that have had an extended off season are maybe a bit fatter or a bit thinner. Yeah, they're a bit fatter because they're out of shape or thinner because they lose muscle mass easily. Either way, they're not fit for purpose. Um, they are, some of them, or one or two of them, are in great places psychologically because they've had time to shut down. That's where I'm at at the moment. I've had time to shut down. <coughs> Some athletes that aren't in great physical shape, but they're like, I'm fucking happy. I've, I've solved some props, sorry, my, my language. I've solved some problems that I, that I probably wouldn't have had to face up to if I wasn't stuck in the house with my dad for three months. And I was like, okay, great, good for you. Good for you. So I think the Olympics being um, put forward a year or being put back a year um, has enabled us to see the, um, the mentality or 
the fortitude or the, the ambition of some of our athletes. Um, and you can see that some of it is really, I've put in extra work, I've had more time to stabilize and I'm prepared for whatever's thrown at me. And for some people it's like, actually I was using training to hide some issues that I had in life and I was forced to face up to them now and I feel better for it. So I, I, I feel like, um, and, and, and you know what, that's athletes. We probably have more coaches and more professionals who are in that second scenario. Yeah, I, I definitely can, in, can, can honestly say, I really didn't understand, this is deep stuff, yeah? So I really didn't understand be, what being a dad really was. My dad worked two or three jobs every day. I, I, my, my perception of my dad was, and is still, um, I get to see him in the evening if I stay up long enough. And if I, and I get up early enough, I get to see him in the morning. I maybe get to see him on a Saturday, um, but probably sleeping most of the day. And we will chill a bit on a Sunday. Yeah, that's, that's my perception. My perception of a mum is she's there every day, every minute she does everything. She, she is the backbone of everything. Yeah, that's my perception of a mum. But yet she still works two jobs. She's still busy. And so I think because I'm a workaholic anyway, and I love coaching, I love everything. I, I pour my heart into it. That's been my perception. Whereas actually the past eight weeks, I get to see my kids every day, what they do, what they don't do, um, how they and, and, and how my wife not just copes, but thrives in that environment. And I realized, bloody hell, I, get, I give myself too much credit. I thought I was working really hard and I was being a dad, but mm -hmm. being a dad really is being here. Being a dad is, is um, uh, picking up a shitty nappy that's smeared all over the carpet, cleaning it up, coming back and then realizing there's now paint on the wall. Cleaning it up, coming back and realizing like there's now, I don't know, painting or glue in your hair. And that being constant, no time to sit down and reflect. As a dad, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm busy, I'm on Zoom, I'm, I'm writing reflections, I'm giving athlete feedback, and in between, I'm sitting back and I'm on Twitter. That's what being a dad is, and I'm like, nah, I kind of get it now. Yeah. I kind of get it. Um, so, definitely off topic, but I, I definitely um, can imagine that there's probably a lot of professionals out there, maybe a lot of dads, who during this time have gone, wow, the when I come home and I'm like to my wife, what have you done all day? It's a very inappropriate question when all she's probably done all day is tried to stop the house from burning down um, as well as get the rest of the stuff done. So I have a, a bigger appreciation for single parents. I've got a big appreciation for mums who have to hold down the fort when dads are away um, and, and really think that the reverse of that should happen more. Uh, and that's almost my, my promise to me, my family, to my wife is actually now that things are going back to normal they're not going to go back to normal they can't I've, I've done the 12 years of being every day at the track um every summer away with competitions um every every indoors away at competitions um and luckily enough my son every april has been warm weather training with us so he's been to florida he's been to tenerife he's been to he's been ev he's been everywhere that i've gone in april which is great but there's also been several months that i've been away um, I think I'm done with that. So there you go. It's a great answer. I can definitely echo and feel, feel what you're feeling. You know, I've been, um, so currently on furlough from QPR, full-time dad, my wife's still working hard. I've worked harder in the last five, six weeks than I ever had in my life looking after the two-year-old. And I know your one's similar age. So I'm itching to get back to work, but one appreciation of, of what other people do and, and what's going on around you. Sometimes you forget about 
Jonas, I'm going to, um, interesting point just before I pass over to, to Ben about the, the COVID period, thriving, surviving and, and the extension of off-season, pre-season. I think it's evident to see now in some of the top flight football games and, and certain sports, those that have thrived as teams. And it's not just about having the physical program to go and do. It's about the culture, the team environment, the psychological side. The teams that have got that right are now reaping the rewards in, in, in the Premier League Championship, et cetera, et cetera. And those that haven't have come back and they're, and they're, they're finding it hard. So it's very, very yeah. evident, very evident. So it's a really good reflection tool. Um, ben, you're going to get into some of your, your passions and going to talk shop with Jonas, I think. So I'll hand over to you, mate. Yeah, no problem. So, yeah, just to kick off, really, um, I've watched a lot of your stuff. And you frequently discuss uh, this particular concept. So if you wouldn't mind, just set up the rest of the chat, really. Um, could you discuss your model around projection, reactivity and switching within like a linear spin uh, sprinting context and also your concept around orientation? Okay, fine. So I think um, you've got to realise that this whole discussion around expertise um, and this discussion around uh, being able to make good decisions is often about being able to chunk lots of information into simple things. Um, and there are some risks that you get through that. And the book Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow identifies those risks. But essentially, being able to chunk information is important for me. So when I think about the reality that speed or most games are about getting from A to B as quickly as possible. And that's all about projecting your center of mass from here to there. Um, if I want to change direction or I want to uh, cut to the left, I am trying to project my center of mass from where I am to where I'm trying to get, get to. So it's not just a linear athletics running uh, a fast 40 meters for se, uh, per se. It's just about understanding that if we want to do anything, it's all about projecting our center of mass. And our center of mass is normally around our hips. Our bum is our biggest, is normally the biggest muscle group um, on the body. And being able to manage your hips um, and use your hips correctly in the, in the right order, the right kinetic chain. Yeah, I talk about bum before back, um, or a lot of the literature will talk about proximal to distal acceleration. And it's just good physics. If our hips are our drivers, then the rest of our limbs respond to the hips. They might balance and help us stabilize but really the driver should come from the hip outwards. So projection for me is about that, is about pushing yourself forwards, projecting your hips in the direction you want to go or the direction or stopping yourself really quickly. So projecting yourself backwards, if you're accelerating, allows you to decelerate. Um, reactivity is just about your ankles. Yeah, reactivity is just about your feet. And if we want to apply force in any direction, if you want to kick a ball, um, if you want to do anything, you, the only way you do it is by first applying force through the ground. Yeah? It, it grounds us, it enables us to push against it and we get an equal and opposite reaction. So if your foot is placed in the right place, I shouldn't say place twice. So if, your foot, if you put your foot in the right place, you allow your knees, your hips, your trunk to be efficient in force production. If you put your feet in the wrong place, you're often decelerating, you're often um, leaking energy, and you're maybe putting more stress on your knees and your hips 
to, to be able to create the forces that you require. Um, and switching, switching for me is just a really simple way of harnessing this simultaneous, no, not simultaneous, um, what's it called? If someone, symbiotic relationship between the pushing of one leg and the recovery of the other. We often, and it's easier to look at one leg. This leg is in, the, in front of the body and it's swinging out and this is our swing leg. Um, and this leg is on the ground, it's pushing and it's triple joint extension. This is the extension leg. But what's more important is this combination of the legs together. I don't have the mobility in my hips, uh, in my fingers to show you properly, but essentially it's the combination. And if we push too long and get large forces, sometimes we reach out and we have a passive leg and it doesn't land where it should land. Or if we reach out too much, sometimes we push too long. The, the, the chicken or the egg is for the coach and the athlete to discover um, through, through training. But either way, that's always the case. If we lift too little, if we, if we don't project our hips hard enough, then maybe we limit our range of motion between our limbs. And if we limit our range of motion, maybe we don't have proper hamstring function of our leg in front. So switching for me really is about, do you have a good relationship between your legs? Um, the timing of force expression, the timing of deceleration, so the ability to stop your leg abruptly so you can bring it forwards, the ability to stop your lower leg from swinging out abruptly so you can bring it back. These are, these are all performance or KPIs of performance. Um, so do we have this ability to control and coordinate our limbs? And this all comes from our hips. Or this is stabilized and really centralized around our hips. So if we have good pelvic function, good lumbar pelvic disassociation, um, and good control and range in our pelvis, um, it allows us to make more use of projecting ourselves and being reactive. Um, the term orientation is just, it fits in with projection. The reason why I've been using it more is because uh, projection almost um, is about a is almost about a distance or um, maybe projection really talks more about distance. Orientation talks about angle a bit more. You can talk about projection angle. You don't have to use these words. These are just easy ways for me to make sense of the world. Um, and we know through lots of research that orientation of your force is really the, uh, allows you to make the most of your force and turn it into power and speed. So orientation for me, like JB's research about RF, what ratio of your force that you can produce vertically, essentially, are you, are you projecting horizontally? Um, and so... That, that should wrap up most of those the, those concepts. Yeah, no, that's fantastic, Jonas. I'll, um, I'll crack on with the next one then. So from your work in um, team sport, what are the biggest issues in acceleration competency and also like red, I call them red flags, but I call red flags in top speed you see most frequently. Um, so I found the, co uh, the concept and discussion around shin roll in, in your recent workshop very interesting. So um, if you could touch on this, that would be great as well. I know that sort of ties into what you just talked about with reactivity, but. Yeah, fine. I mean, common, common errors in acceleration. I think there's a common errors in, in team sports in general, maybe in sport across the board, is that if an athlete has done well to get there, it becomes a philosophical question. If it ain't broken, do we, do we break it? Or if it, if it ain't broken, you don't need to fix it. 
Yeah, There's, these are two. These are two perspectives. If they're this good and they're already doing what they need to do, I I don't want to change their model because they've self-organized themselves to get here. This is what this is the argument that people say. Or the only way I will change it is by using drills and activities that link well to the tech tactical um, game model for what we're trying to do. So I'm only going to change it during football or during rugby. Um, and the problem with that is kind of what I alluded to earlier, that, it, that people always self-organize themselves away from the path of, the, uh, towards the path of least resistance. So if I'm a quad-based runner because I play in the midfield and all I do is stop-start, maybe also because I'm long body, short legs, my center of mass is low and I'm designed to, to I'm physically designed to play in that position, as well as my history in this position in this sport has made me develop anatomically key areas that are good for acceleration, which might be my knees, yeah, my quads. Um, and I don't have this ability to disassociate my extension. So I'd rather use my lumbar spine to, to extend my, my pelvis essentially, rather than use my bum, yeah? Um, or extend my posterior chain, sorry, rather than use my bum. So we've got this situation. So in this situation, for that individual, my first three or four steps of acceleration is far is going to be far easier if I roll my knee and put all the um, weight in my quads, maybe even drop my ankle. Maybe I'm less reactive and I make the most of my quad maximal strength and, and, and power and impulse. Um, and that would be great for three steps. But after those three to four steps, I start to leak energy. I start because after the first three to four stops of acceleration, my hips should be rising. My posterior chain should be involved more, should have more cyclical action. These are now, I'm now encouraging, or that part of the running phase is now encouraging someone who's quad dominant with short legs and long body to use their weakness, essentially, to use what they haven't spent years doing. So you've got a philosophical question. Do I just never expose them to these things because they're never good at it? And in fact, when they, when they try to do it, there's increased risk of injury because they don't have the underpinning physical qualities and don't have the technical model to do it. Yeah? And as a result, they don't have a work capacity to do it. Um, so there's an increased risk of doing something new, different, and essentially working on people's weaknesses. Um, so I see this a lot in sport is that if they're good, then don't change it. Okay. But actually, we find that if you don't have a very good posterior chain, if you're only designed or you're physically at a point where most of what you do is, is short excels, decels, and you haven't really been exposed to upright running, and you don't really have a strong posterior chain, then if you keep working early on your strengths, you're more likely to have an overuse injury of your strength. You're all also less adaptable, less adaptable to moments in the game where it requires you to do a box-to-box or it requires you to accelerate, slow down, and then sprint and sprint again and do some sprint float sprints. Um, you are, um, as a result, a bit maybe one dimensional. Um, so maybe we do need to focus on your weaknesses, but do it in a way that doesn't take away from your strengths and do it in a way that doesn't um, uh, take away from your next training session. So there is this art of like density and dose response that we need to think about in these scenarios. So acceleration the the bigger issues i see are that um you talked about shin roll so i'm, I'm going to ask you a question here what what is it about shin roll that um that that you saw that you think about that you thought was appropriate to talk about right now 
So with the concept of Shinro, the athlete not getting, if I've understood it right, the athlete not getting the correct shin angle to then apply mm. back into the ground. So yeah. if they apply force with a too neutral shin angle, they have to mm. hit the ground, spend time, more time on the floor, roll over mm. and then push mm. as, yeah. as opposed to punching through, as you talked about switching, mm. punching straight back down with a positive angle. And then yeah. straight forward. And so um, this this action of swing leg retraction, yeah, when your knee is at the top, either in acceleration or upright running, whatever it is, when your swing leg has finished swinging, do you retract it? Do you pull it back into the ground, or do you let it drop passively? Yeah. And once you're on the ground, is when you decide to or you take up that concentric slack to then push. So the difference is, do you take up, sorry, eccentric slack, do you take it up in the air and start to wind it up, take slack out of your system so that by the time you hit the ground, firstly, you've got negative foot speed and secondly, you've created pre-tension so that you're ready to push straight away. Or do you just allow it to drop on the ground and now that you've landed, you then amortize and get, get stretch in your quad and then push off your quad, yeah? yeah. We want everything to be bum-driven. And there are some scenarios where you cannot be bum driven, but you want the bum to be involved. If it's not the driver, it's definitely in the front seat. But often when you let athletes who are quad dominant, just rely on being quad dominant and rely on their, um, their knees to do everything, the, the posterior chains in the back seat or is in the boot or got off, got off on, on you know, the last stop on the bus stop, right? Um, and, but yet, we talk, look at uh, um, patella issues. Most of the stuff is about balancing hamstring, especially lower hamstring involvement. You took look at um, hamstring bicep issues. Most of the, the solutions are around um, conditioning the medial hamstring muscles and, and, and teaching co-contractions between quad and hamstring. You look at um, ACL research and rehab. You look at groin rehab and research. Everything's about bringing the posterior chain in so that it can work as a pair so that it can be working in co-contraction, so it can take up slack out of the system so the hips can do the action or the trunk can be controlled. So you look at most of the time when we're rehabbing players, um, a lot of the work goes into, yeah, by all means, nights, you might have to first address the, the, the damage site on the quad or on the patella. Um, but after that, it becomes about co-contraction. It becomes about encouraging the posterior chain and really what it's about, it's about the swing leg retraction action. Yeah, that phrase I got from Franz Bosch, swing leg retraction, and it just sings in every environment I've been in for the past 10 years, when I think, what is my input being? It's just teaching people how to use their limbs together effectively, not to over-dominate one action of pushing or one action of, um, of retraction, but combine these actions together. And guess what? When they can do that, and most of it's about coordination through their pelvis, they kick better, they pass better, their balance in change of direction is better, they can control their torso better. If you can control your torso because you can separate it from your hips, from your pelvis, then you can always decelerate better, you can cut better, change direction better, and now you can respond to your environment better. So it's, um, uh, it it's definitely comes down to swing leg retraction. Do you have the um, pelvic postures and stabilities to, to do the action? Do you have the uh, uh, posterior chain or just muscular strength and underpinning qualities 
to to withstand and tolerate the action um and do you have the technical uh and, and coordination to be able to uh, i guess coordinate the action and put your foot in the right place so that you can do it again yeah perfect in terms of that technical requirement mm. are you teaching that with resisted running or are you teaching that through other other methods I think, or I, I think that's the all that's the be all and end all i think any olympic lifts and, and squats and and everything that we're doing in the gym um, posterior chain proximal loading distal loading all, all of our all of the work we're doing really is it should be the the rungs of the pyramid below this technical model um, yeah. and i think technical technical model for sprinting should be our litmus test as good snc coaches right now the tradition is that you go to ukSA guess what it's olympic lifts and and squat and maybe a jump i don't know but it's really olympic lifts yeah. whereas the the reality is that it's part that's part of a puzzle but the biggest puzzle is what every sport person wants tennis rugby um judo everyone wants to be explosive and efficient and wants to be able to continue to be explosive and efficient in the last third of their competition time because that's really where really important actions happen by all means i'm great that i'm fast but can i be fast in the last 10 minutes can i be wolves basically and keep scoring goals in the last 20 minutes of a half yeah or of a game that's the kind that's the kind of players we want who have this capacity to go 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 and when everyone's fatiguing go again that's when you score goals right that's when you win games um and so that it comes from the technical model in the in in the running in resisted running in the drills in your warm up in your pre act in your gym in your running conditioning in your game conditioning it comes it's everywhere it's about moving away from just metrics of things that we can measure or that we're comfortable measuring and being more comfortable with um, or being or challenge yourself more with KPIs of of the reality KPIs of your sport and the rea and the reality is that fast players are able to either beat other players because they're faster or able to pace themselves and bring themselves down to the game pace the average speed of the game and it not tax them and if it's not taxing them physically they have more um, mental emotional energy to to go towards to playing the game you, you're not you're not feeling pace not feeling stressed you have more energy, more confidence to do what you need to do. Um, so um, long-winded answer. I think you, you do coach it through pulling the sled. You do coach it through running drills. Um, you do coach it through your gym and, and your real general actions. Well, um, but more importantly, you want to start to see it turn into game-specific actions. Yeah. Um, and you have to have the art and the, and the patience to, um, to encourage that, for sure. That's fantastic. Um, just, yeah, last question for me. So, sort of been thinking about it. SNC, they're always, you know, SNC coaches, and it's right, they're always discussing sort of a squat, hinge, you know, push, pull, jump, land, rotate, like, it's all fantastic stuff. Um, that's building, like, that well-rounded SNC program. So, I was just yeah. thinking, in terms of the foot and the ankle, um, it should be, like, such a significant part of a solid performance program just like to hear your thoughts on programming for that foot ankle calf complex and as well as how you've or seen it or done it yourself how you've assessed it okay i, I think when we talk about foot and ankle we, we kind of easiest thing is to visualize plyometrics 
and visualize this difference between stiff-legged, um, fast SSC movements and more, more knee bend, ankle hip bend in a slow SSC movement, yeah? So I'm gonna call it a, a, the difference between a drop jump and a, maybe a cow movement jump, yeah? Um, or a pogo hop and a uh, vertical jump, right? Um, and I think the action of the ankle, um, the, the action of the ankle or the reaction, action of the whole chain is gonna be very different. In one, you're more likely to try and maximize stiffness at the ankle, um, foot and ankle, um, and it to be uh, yeah really, really stiff so the knee and hip can start to extend really early, right? Whereas another one, you need a bit of compression. You need to be able to get deep into deeper angles of flexion so that all three joints can couple to extend together, right? So you've got one that's expressing more um, range and, and the other that isn't. So what does that mean to conditioning? Well, I, I think for me, it, it's a, the difference between a calf race, a, a bent leg and a, and a straight leg. It's the difference between um, conditioning the soleus versus conditioning the gastric. Um, and um, all of them are underpinned by conditioning the, the foot arches and just foot stability. The ability to create free arches in your foot um, and stand barefoot, let's say, and be able to um, make sure you can... Uh, essentially you can create springs in your feet okay so we're talking about lower leg conditioning we're talking about um, uh, intrinsic foot muscles we're talking about big toe and and all your all your rays so your all your your um, carpal metacarpal spine or all your metacarpal um, mobility is we're talking about um, does your talus actually slide inside the joint yeah does your subtalar and your subtalar joint and your calcaneus is there movement? Can you rotate your midfoot or is it stiff as a brick? When you're going from heel strike to, to toe off, do you go from a heel strike with a, a heel strike with a bit of pronation during contact supinate and then during toe off pronate again and actually bend through your big toe? Is your foot a lever? that supports increasing force production, or when your foot lands, is just land like a plank, slap onto the ground, and just wait for your hip to go over and lever passively. Um, so there are, there are lots of intricacies that we think about with the foot, and wearing, taping yourself really tight, taping your ankles really tight, and, wearing, and tying your laces really tight, wearing football boots a, a half a size smaller, all these things that most players do to feel comfortable and secure actually takes away from some kinesthetic awareness. So I try to spend as much time, especially with my ankle and my Achilles rehabbers, even my knee guys, um, a lot of time barefoot, a lot of time walking barefoot, doing a range of, of actions in all three planes barefoot and encouraging them to start to awaken their ability to pronate and supinate, to evert and invert to um, dorsiflex and to bend their toes. Um, and uh, so I don't know if I've actually answered your question. Um, I, I, what I see notoriously in team sports is under conditioning of the lower legs. Only during rehab do, does it become a big deal. There are the odd, the odd teams. I, can, I could probably name four or five teams across football rugby that I know the conditioners see the value in it. Um, but I often see under conditioning, I see often see under um, underloading of plyometric and, and general strength 
um, of, of a foot complex. And definitely um, this has an impact on injury and, and um, return to play for sure. I don't know if I've answered your question directly though, so you might have to rephrase it. And I'm going to put on my one, my one sentence answer hat on right now. So no, 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 no. it was good stuff. I think in addition, I was sort of getting at the fact that I feel like maybe clubs would, you know, they bang in a, a calf raise, for example, bodyweight calf raise. Is there mm -hmm. an undervaluing of maybe, uh, you know, the Alex Natera ISO series or the, or the heavy landmine seated calf raise? Do, do you see what I mean? And maybe a team sport is sort of an afterthought. Yeah. Just yeah, thinking about really. Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I think general work capacity of the calf is important. So body weight calf raise over 24 reps to kind of says that you're fit to play and you're fit to train. It doesn't say you're fit to perform. Yeah. So we have lots of body, body weight markers and even in season, you might decide to do a body weight calf raise, but if that's not a stressor for them, it's not going to increase performance. It might just get some blood in the area and, and, and keep it, uh, I, I don't know, it might keep the tissue happy, but it won't increase performance. You do need to, like every muscle group, like every exercise, have a progression. Have a progression that moves you towards having the, the, the types of uh, loads um, or time on attentions that are suitable to your performance level and are going to give you some stress to take you beyond it. So, so by all means, by all means, the way we look at bums and hamstrings is the same way we should look at calves. Yep. Are we creating some eccentric overload at some point in the week um, or some point in the cycle? Are we creating some real, real heavy isometric stress? Because we know our guys sprinting at top speed are putting four times body weight through the ground. Is the calf complex prepared for that? Or when they get to those speeds, they're more likely to crumble through their calf and knee and have to spend longer time on the ground because they don't have the capacities. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes the biggest limiting factor or the, or the easiest low-hanging low hanging fruit is teaching people to create large forces through their calf in, in stance phase. And that can be done through drills, but a lot of that can be done through heavy isometrics or, or, or progressive eccentric work, for sure. Yeah, brilliant. Top stuff. I'll um, pass back over to Ross. Thank you for that. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Jonas. A couple of things off that, Jonas. I was scribbling some stuff down. Great info in there. In terms of, I've heard a few things on podcasts around people, I think a bit of misconception around vertical and horizontal force. It's like people talk about it in two different, they're two different things. But essentially, our body can produce force in triple extension. And as you say, it's the orientation that then dictates the magnitude in which way that force is, is, is projected, right? Mm, 100%. I agree. Yeah. What, um, what do you think then on that in terms of players? What's the biggest thing then that limits people taking their vertical force production and then orientating or, or, or projecting that in more of a horizontal? Is it that their trunk ability is poor to transfer? Is it that they can't get full hip extension? Just thinking things out loud in terms of this real acceleration model, sometimes we really coach people to lean forward. But and mm. me and Ben have spoken about this before. By leaning forward, are they actually essentially hinging at the hip? Are they losing extension? Are there mm. certain things you look for in athletes where you say, right, there's your golden opportunity to lean forward at this moment in time, but we want to get you to lean forward more over the next few months or a few cycles, for example? Um, I'll answer your question in part. So I think uh, vertical versus horizontal. My, in my mind, the quads are for vertical force and the bums is for horizontal force. Yeah, that's, that's my like really easy, may not be 100% true, um, heuristic um, and what I mean by that is 
if you squat and you squat heavy um, and you front squat heavy and lo a lot of that load is going through your quads, it gets to a point where your strength rate ratio is now going to enhance your ability to produce force in any direction. But after that, it's not really helping anymore um, because most of the load is going to your quads. And, you, and so for me, a horizontal force production thing is about, do you know how to extend your hip using your bum as your driver, not your lumbar spine as your driver? But when we keep getting stronger in a squat, it gets to a point where actually our lumbar spine and our rectus spiny is what's really developing. So we get a strong trunk and we're strong at a squat. And that's going to be very, very important when we're running at top speed and having to um, prevent ourselves from squashing into the ground at those high speeds and those high amounts of forces are putting through the ground. Our vertical, um, almost taking away our pacing and our, and our, uh, uh, central governor type stuff. We're taking away all the limitations to our body and our perception of force and allowing us to stay long and strong. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, that squat won't necessarily mean that our um, swing leg retraction is going to be any better. What is going to be better is once we've done the swing leg and we're producing lots of forces back to the ground, once we hit the ground, do we collapse or do we produce lots of good vertical force really early in the ground contact? In the first third, do we create a large impulse in the first third? And if we do that, great, because then the rest of our effort and our attention can be go towards producing more horizontal force. So vertical force is the biggest limiting factor. We've got to keep ourselves up. If not, we fall over. So most of the force in the beginning of acceleration, especially for weaker or less developed athletes, nearly all of the force is all about keeping ourselves upright, and that's why they go up. But once you can produce more than you need, to keep yourself upright, then actually you can start to produce that force early, really quickly, and mo more of your force or more of your effort can to go towards going forwards. And I think more of that effort comes from your bum, from your posterior chain, from your hamstrings. So rolling over an acceleration, if I'm rolling over an acceleration just to get myself started and I don't actually apply a force into the ground, then yeah, I'm just stumbling. I'm using gravity to fall over and my leg is just kicking out and catching me, stopping me from falling over, producing enough vertical to keep me up. And then I'm just stopping, getting ready to catch myself again. Franz Bosch talks about embarrassing forward rotation. Yeah, you've seen it many times that people are running and maybe they can't actually stop. They are just rolling forwards. They're not actually accelerating and applying large forces horizontally. They're using gravity and the fact that they've put their center of mass so far out in front of them and they're just stumbling. Mm. So if you're teaching people to go roll forwards, but yet they're not applying force and projecting themselves and then being, and then switching their limbs and being reactive to attack the ground, they are just stumbling and rolling forwards. Um, so horizontal, we can just produce force and it's in the gym, we can produce force. The question is what muscle groups and in what order are we producing that force? So if we come back to this um, squat analogy and it's more of a back squat and there is more control of your shins, I'm not saying knees over toes is a bad thing. I'm saying that control, using your posterior chain to control your shearing of your femur or, sh or control your, your um, sorry, your, your tibia from rolling forwards. If you can use your posterior chain to, to stabilize your legs, and to support your hips 
and if on the lowering and on the ascent, your bum is the driver and your erector spine and your lumbar spine are responding to the extension of your bum, then that's more likely going to turn into an acceleration, into a good acceleration. That's more likely going to encourage and support your ability to accelerate. Whereas if you're doing Olympic lifts and you always catch it, your back's fully upright, your knees shock, go shoot forwards, and you're catching it primarily by using your erectors and your quads to catch the weight, then you're, then you're less likely for that action to turn into uh, acceleration. But you're more likely for that to support deceleration, right? You're more likely for that, for that to support. So I'm not, I'm not saying have a bad Olympic lift technique to get better at decel. I'm just saying that if we're talking about transfer from the gym or from general activities to specific, the way I would assess it is by really understanding um, what are the adaptations you're going to get based on that movement style, on that movement strategy. And are those strategies you're developing and getting stronger at here in line with the strategies that you're trying to develop over here? And when they're misaligned, then you get less transfer. And when they're more aligned, you get more transfer. Does that answer your question? Perfect. Yeah, great detail, Jonas. Thank you very much. And the last one, just back on there, when you spoke about players who are faster are more effective in the game and essentially are more efficient at sub speeds and they can work at lower percentages. Obviously, within yeah. team sports, you've got a lot of energy system development and stuff that you've got to consider as well, your aerobic capacity, et cetera, et cetera. What's your thoughts on... Obviously, that's quite counterintuitive of developing max speed and they're, they're quite conflicting... Uh, physiological mm. qualities what's your thoughts then on the balance of developing those and would you put much ownership on energy system demands over developing max speed where do you sit on the fence on that one no i think you need both obviously you need both um and you know the, the i guess the discussions around repeat speed endurance right or re repeat sprintability and if it sits in the middle i always envisage speed to be on one side and aerobic to be on the other and by all means you need enough aerobic capacity for this decrement let's say let's say you're doing six sprints in fact it's on the wall i'm gonna walk because um, it, might, it might make it easier alan was here earlier this week so i don't know if you can see that um so, so let's just say you've got six sprints and you you're you want um, the really the, the moral of the story is just because you don't fatigue across the six sprints doesn't mean that that's the goal. I almost don't mind a bit of fatigue as long as the average speed and the average times are faster across um, from one person to another. And generally, of course, you need work capacity, you need aerobic capacity, you need the recoverability, but you, you need specific work capacity. And just because someone is fit doesn't mean they're going to be um, have speed endurance. They might just have slow endurance. And slow endurance isn't, ain't really that useful. Um, and so repeat speed endurance is what matters. And um, being, being faster turns your nervous system and your capacity to, to do work, it just makes it all easier. It just makes, what they say, rising tides... Uh, or a tide rises all ships or I don't know what the phrase is bad or something like that yeah um a rising tide lifts up all ships or whatever it is and I think speed is one of those things 
Because if you, and that's why I said there's a difference between training speed and training force speed. If you've trained force speed, you've developed a nervous system, you've developed the right underpinning physical qualities, you've created work capacity for acceleration and sprinting, um, and you've developed uh, almost a, a subconscious belief and understanding of the underpinning heuristics. So basically you've developed skillful, better moving players um, who then when exposed to high work rates, high densities of work, low densities and more aerobic work, whatever it is, they make the better use of their system, of their active and their passive contractile elements. They're just better athletes. They, they load and explode better. They dissipate energy across the system better. And their nervous system is primed and used to it and doesn't go into a pacing strategy as a result of it. Um, that, that just enables you to train your athletes. However, even if you're in a more in, 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 uh, uh, endurance-based sport, we see it in, in, this, in the middle distance and long events in track and field. Even those guys use sprint work, sprint drills, sprint-specific physical conditioning to prepare themselves because they realize, okay, if we have better hardware, we, our energy system stuff is easier. Um, and we don't, maybe we don't have to do as much to get the gains, or maybe we don't break down and we're able to do more at lower paces. Either way, you want to have an athlete. You, you just want to have an athlete. So that, that's my, my biggest bias, is that um, when you've got good, explosive, elastic athletes, life is easy. That's first thing. Um, and then maybe the second thing is, um, that you can develop them concurrently. This is maybe the issue for people, is that they don't know how to do them both at the same time, and so they choose one rather than the other, and they hope if they're getting really fit, oh, we'll do some flying sprints in, in week six and week eight, and that'll make them faster, and if some get hurt because it's a massive spike of intensity, oh well, and, and, and actually we'll just be ready to play. Um, whereas there, there are a number of teams that from week one are working on things to help with elasticity they, they are starting to profile players and say right we know your position needs more flying sprinting we know your position has more uh, high speed running um, and we also know you for whatever reason break down easily or the gaffer really wants to rely on disability with you and it's not good enough um, or whatever it is so in our pre-season in our winter in our off season we're going to work on these things whilst we're doing our MAS whilst we're doing our in intermittent running whilst we're working on aerobic capacities you can do both you can both work on strength and hypertrophy or strength and power at the same time you, you can do both it's the timing of when it happens when it happens in the week when it happens in the day um uh Stu mcmillan talks about a complex hierarchy we have these all of our priorities are on our list but during this cycle what's number one priority what's number two what's number three um, Brad DeWeese has a really good presentation on, on periodization. It's probably about 10 years old now, but it's the same kind of thing. Um, figure out what your priorities are, figure out how much time you've got and create some phase potentiation so that what you're doing now builds and crescendos towards what you want over here. And if the game is a game where you need to have aerobic capacities and you need to be able to sprint, if that's the game that you're playing for and playing every week, then your training has to be able to develop it concurrently as well. You know, you, you, so I, I think it's it, some of the limitations are, are people's perceptions of training theory and how to apply it. Um, and some of the limitations are um, 
not not doing your job as a fitness coach or SNC coach in relation to your gaffer. And really, my point is, you have some head coaches who will choose to train slow. Yeah, lots of walkthroughs, lots of coaching in between, lots of breaks in in training because they're coaching. Lots of lots of long training sessions, not necessarily intense. If that's how your coach plans to train, and you can't encourage him to move more towards a more specific model, whatever it is, your job is to fill the gap. Yeah. You, you need to go and do whatever's missing. If you have a coach that's the opposite, lots of intensity, lots of big and small-sided um, games, um, really organized with the, the training sessions where he chooses to talk versus training sessions where he's really hot on recoveries in between drills, 30 seconds, 90 seconds. Um, the, he, he's built a, a training session design around the worst-case scenarios of match play and has a really good, a nuanced way of, managing space and time to overload or underload the players based on the real requirements of the game. <clears throat> if that's a scenario you're in, your job as a fitness coach is very different. Your job as a fitness coach is always going to differ every new manager that you get. And no matter what, they all want fast and fit players, but they also don't want injuries. And because the best ability is the availability, we choose to not get them injured until you get a manager like Eddie Jones in rugby, where he will, or, or maybe like Klopp, who's like, I need my players fast. If you break them, naughty, don't do it again, find a better way, but that doesn't mean don't make them fast. I need to play this way, and if we don't push the limits and we don't develop as a team, and if I don't adapt myself, my coaching drills alongside your perception of what they need and how you're going to train it maybe in isolation, if we're not adapting together, we won't reach where we need to go to. And those, those are the best managers, the best people to work with, the people you learn from, the people who every year your system together and your system in isolation adapts and evolves because you start to see what the, 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 the ceiling is of a certain capability or capacity. Um, as a fitness coach, you start to see, I thought I could only elicit 95% um, of someone's sprint um, speed by doing this linear drill. But over time, when we adapt this coaching drill with transitions, we can get that same intensity or maybe higher. So when I've got what I think is a speed day happening, actually, I don't have to do as much in isolation. I do the preparation for it, get them ready for it. And then we've planned well that the next drill they do in football is this transition drill. I'm going to get my speed done in football but I'm going to make sure they're prepared for it by making my activation or my session before or whatever it is, um, take them to that intensity. So there's this constant evolution, I think, from a fitness coach's perspective, that if you understand your game model and you understand your gaffer, you understand how he wants to train, you understand the capabilities and capacities of your players, that you then evolve your system together so that you can develop the qualities you want without breaking them without making sure, and whilst getting them fast and fit at the same time. Um, so a long-winded answer, I think that took seven minutes, could have taken Long, longer. Long-winded are the best ones, don't worry, Jonas. So they're top draw. Just before we go on to the next section, um, the kind of last section and chunk of stuff, let's give everyone just a little breather while I advertise the website a little bit. I know I need to get my head around a few things. So if uh, members, 
if or if you're non-members please head over to the website www.elysportscience.com loads of stuff over there drills snc sports science different practices from gaelic football from football etc loads going on over there uh, barry milan's done a new hurling in the last two months hurling practice which is loads of um, stuff over there as well and a big mention to our sponsor www.rit.app who sponsor us now for the next couple of months as well it's great to have them on board um so thank you very much